Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you all for being here today. Again, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors. And I uh, have the privilege of walking through uh, this text today. And my hope and prayer is that the gospel will be made crystal clear. So whether you're a Christian this morning or maybe you're on the fence, maybe you're in a stage of deconstruction or investigating the faith, wherever you're at this morning, one thing I do know for certain uh, is that we all have one thing in common, and we all do love a good story. Um, my friend Brian... McDonald released a book this week uh, called Land of the Dead, and he is a world-class storyteller. And one of the things that he likes to talk about when it comes to storytelling is that stories, yeah, can be entertaining, um, but the point of a story is not entertainment. The point of a story is to convey survival information. That's why, you know, you can remember the three little pigs right now. Most of you probably didn't get up and read that this morning, but, and you might not have heard the story in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years or something, and yet, why did your little brain latch onto that so early? Going, oh, now when it comes time to work, make sure I get good materials and don't play around on all the, why? Because your primal brain is wired for survival, and so stories exist to a significant degree to communicate how to survive, how to live wisely in the world. One of the greatest storytellers that's ever been given to us, and Christians and unbelievers alike, love the man C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was born in, I think, 1898 in Belfast, died in 1968 in Oxford. And C.S. Lewis is one of the world's great, most premier storytellers and literary scholars eventually, theologian. And C.S. Lewis gave us books like The Chronicles of Narnia, The Problem of Pain, The Abolition of Man, The Screwtape Letters. I mean, for those of you that are like C.S. Lewis, just raise your hands if you have, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, just everybody's like, we know, man, we, mm, all the nerds are so excited. Yes, The Great Divorce. His space trilogy, it's just magnifique. Well, he, he wasn't always a Christian. In fact, well, he grew up in a Christian home and went to boarding school, but by the time he was 14, getting out of boarding school, he described his Christian upbringing as quite bland and decided to reject Christianity as a whole and leaned far more into like rationalism and idealism, and then finally, atheism. And um, at the age of about 18, just before being sent off to World War I, he was at a train station, and he picked up a book by a man known as George MacDonald. And George MacDonald, you might have come across his writings too, a Scottish guy. George wrote a lot of fantasy fiction work. And later in life, C.S. Lewis has this to say as an atheist or a former atheist writing to atheists 
A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. (laughs) He gave a warning because he thought he would stay an atheist all his life. So Fantastes, it's a, it's a novel about a 21-year-old man who finds himself in basically this kind of uh, fairy world, a dreamlike state. And as he's going through this fairy world, he's seeking out wisdom and truth and what belongs in reality and what doesn't. Should he make his way back into reality? I want to bring this wisdom back to me, or back to the, back to the world. And at one point in the book, he comes across this this man named Percival, and he becomes his squire. And they're going to this kind of a a cultic worship service. And as they get closer and closer to this cultic worship gathering, um, the young man, Anadus, can perceive, oh my gosh, there's two human beings that are struggling, and they're about to be offered as human sacrifices against their will. And so he becomes incensed with this, I've got to do something. And he's a really intelligent guy in the book, but he's also a little crazy. (laughs) So he charges up toward where they're they're about to sacrifice these human beings. And Anadus draws his sword, and all of a sudden, this, like, wolf god appears. And Anadus slays the wolf. And it's unbelievable. And then, as he turns around, all the servants, those that have been gathered to worship, of course, they kill the protagonist, Anatus, he dies. And then, as he's laying in his coffin, his conscience is still there. And he's able to more or less view his own funeral. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and so, this is what, listen to what George MacDonald writes as he describes this scene. I was dead and right content. I lay in my coffin with my hands folded in peace The night and the lady I loved wept over me. Her tears fell on my face. Ah, said the night. I rushed amongst them like a madman. I hewed them down like brushwood. Their swords battered on me like hail, but hurt me not. I cut a lane through to my friend. He was dead, but he had throttled the monster, and I had cut the handful out of his throat before I could disengage and carry off his body. They dared not molest me. As I brought him back, please telling the story. He has died well, said the lady. My spirit rejoiced. They left me to my repose. I felt as if a cool hand had been laid upon my heart and had stilled it. My soul was like a summer evening after a heavy fall of rain. When the drops are yet glistening on the trees and the last rays of the sun, of the downgoing sun, And the wind of the twilight has begun to blow. The hot fever of life had gone by. And I breathed the clear mountain air of the land of death. I'd never dreamed of such blessedness. Isn't that beautiful writing? As C.S. Lewis read Fantastes on the Train, he said this in his autobiography. That night, My imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me, not unnaturally, took longer. (laughs) His baptism, his imagination underwent a kind of a baptism. 
And so his rationalism and his idealism and ultimately his atheism came under the assault of his own imagination. So then he went on and he got his education and became friends with other famous people. Some are lesser known, Barfield and Owen, but his most famous friend is, who is it? Tolkien, there you go. Gosh, isn't this great? So he becomes friends with these guys. Does anybody know for five bonus points what their little crew was called? Go ahead, in the back, Bryce. The Inklings, yes. All right, five points for Bryce. Yes, the Inklings. And what did they do? They nerded out in Oxford. They walked around the grounds of Magdalene and they smoked their pipes and drank their whiskey and talked about mythology and all the great literary works around the world. And they just nerded out on this stuff and challenged one another. The rest of the boys were Christians, but C.S. Lewis wasn't yet. And then one night after walking around and talking, Tolkien had put a particularly difficult challenge to Lewis and he became very frustrated all of a sudden with himself in his unbelief. He writes in his autobiography, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come at last upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compele and trare, compel them to come in, have been abused by wicked men that we should shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. But he wasn't totally converted yet. His imagination had been baptized. He now had humbled himself in prayer but then the famous trip to the zoo. This is what he says. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. Do any of you struggle with that, by the way? I'm not exactly sure when I met Jesus. Yeah. C.S. Lewis goes, I, I, the, I don't know how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning, and when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. And yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, 
still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. And it was like that moment on top of the bus, ambiguous. Freedom or necessity? Or do they differ at their maximum? Why tell you the story of C.S. Lewis's undergoing a baptized imagination to finally praying to all of a sudden at the zoo? (laughs) Converted? Because if you're going to live the Christian life, you're going to have to engage your imagination. How else can you do something like, do this in remembrance of me if you've never seen it? In a way, your soul has. In a way, your soul has seen him. But it's going to take some imagining. So the early church in Acts chapter 2 devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to praying. And the first reference to the breaking of the bread is the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper, wherever tradition you grew up in. If, If you grew up in a Christian tradition, that's the language used to refer to the sacrament. The word sacrament, by the way, means sacred mystery, and I love that because there's no way we could actually plumb the depths of what all is going on in communion. And we Christians, we tend to want to squeeze the mystery out of everything (laughs) to the nth degree. Sacred mystery. So rather than plumb the depths of transubstantiation and consubstantiation and all the Asians that go on in people's belief around communion, I want to simply just ask the question, what does communion signify and what is it saying? Again, you're going to have to use your imagination because you're reaching 2,000 years backwards And at the same time, you're reaching 2,000 years forward. And you're building your life on the person and the work of Jesus. So what does it signify? Well, meals in the Bible are not described as fuel. Meals in the Bible are stories. All of them. The Bible never just talks about food as fuel. It's a story. In the Garden of Eden, what happened? We took fruit and we ate it. In the Exodus, what happens? There's a Passover lamb that is sacrificed. And later manna falls from heaven as they're on their way to where? A place called the land of milk and honey. And then the prophets begin to say things like, one day when the Messiah reigns in all of his glory, we're going to sit on Mount Zion and we're going to drink the finest wine and eat the choicest meats. And then when the Messiah showed up, 
Jesus Christ, what did he do? The first thing, he turns water into wine. Just like Isaiah said he would. And then Jesus begins to eat, not with emperors and people in power. He sits with sinners and eats with them. He multiplies food and feeds thousands. Of course, there's the Last Supper. And then even after his resurrection, I think my favorite question he ever asked (laughs) came on the heels of the resurrection. He found the boys on the beach, right? And they're cooking broiled fish. And he says, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) I just love, I love that. And then the meals keep going. We participate in communion week by week in the church. And, the, and later in Acts, we read that they had meals in their homes. And, and then finally, there's the great text in Revelation where the, the banquet supper of the Lamb. Meals are stories. So if you go back to the Last Supper, What is it that Jesus said about this meal? He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He does not say, do this in fear of me or do this out of a place of shame. He says, I want you to do this in remembrance. (laughs) In remembrance of me. Remembering someone is the way you love them. Who remembers you? Who do you remember? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because my love for you is from everlasting to everlasting. It is firm, unwavering, unmovable, The covenant that I'm establishing is not an empty-headed philosophy. And it is certainly the furthest thing from sloppy sentimentalism. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's trying to say, I don't intend to live in the periphery of your mind. Take, eat, drink, his instructions to us, he's trying to say, I'm, I want the gospel not to be data that occasionally occurs to you when a moment of disappointment happens. He's trying to say, I want the very essence of who I am to metabolize within you to such a degree that you live out of the center. Does that make sense? I'm not a peripheral idea. I'm the center of your life. And so he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Beloved, <laughs> this, this should fill our hearts with gladness, 
joy, reverence, and tremendous relief. To be spared the judgment, justice, wrath of Almighty God. Who in all of history can stand before the righteous, blameless, holy throne of God and say, judge me. Who can stand and say, I'm blameless, I am sinless, I am spotless? None of us. But there is one. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as Jesus went to Calvary, he went there not for his own sake, for his own sins, but for mine and for yours. And so as Jesus' body was broken and brutalized and his blood was shed, he established and secured once and for all the forgiveness of sins. So hear me, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, do not expect to see a stranger or a judge with a scowl on his face. But you should expect the smile of your heavenly spouse. You are the bride of Christ. Of all the identities being floated out to us in society right now, you are the bride of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. Jesus is the groom that laid down his life in order to avert the wrath of God. And with his words, he washes us and makes us clean before the throne of God. You're holy. So what I'm trying to say is that God loves you not from a distance but up close. And there is no limit to what God wouldn't do to redeem those he would call his own. Our salvation is secure because it's not based on us. Thank God it's not riding on us. Our salvation is secure because it is based entirely upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. How long has it been since your soul felt a bit of relief? You know, for years and years, I punished myself thinking that when I would get into some kind of sin of any kind, I would think that God would expect me to kind of more or less keep my distance from him because he was like a kind of an angry dad that, you know, you need to kind of keep your distance from. Like, just 
just don't go around him. Just maybe take another lap around the lake, you know, and he'll cool off eventually. And then maybe after enough time goes by, things might feel okay again, you know. That's the antithesis of the gospel. He died and rose, not so that we would be on the other side of the lake. He died and rose and called it finished once and for all. We always belong in the presence of our Father. Hmm. So that's a little bit of what communion signifies. Communion is reminding you of his covenant. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So that's what it signifies. But what is it saying now? Like right now? You ready to use your imagination? Yeah? Don't look at communion. Do not look at the elements. Like a prism, look through them. See through them and hear the words of Jesus. Okay? So you fix your eyes here on the broken bread and poured wine and I'm just going to read a few of Jesus' words himself. The apostles instructed the early church, examine yourselves before you take communion. So let the imagination peering through the prism of communion lead you to a place of examining and hearing the words of Jesus now, okay? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man will go to the Father except through me. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did unto me. I and the Father are one. Do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself.
Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left one also. Friend, do you betray your brother with a kiss? But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God's. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Let's just take a moment and sit with the words of Jesus. What a savior, what a friend we have in Jesus. If you're not a Christian today, I would just like to tell you God so loves you that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe in him, that you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. If you are a Christian today, I want to remind you that God has not forgotten about you, that he is present to you, and that he loves you, and that he delights in you as his very bride. Okay, that's all I've got for today.